Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello and welcome to the August 2008 edition of the Yale Press Podcast, the monthly podcast from Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and it's way too hot to try to be clever. In this episode, I speak with Derek Van Beaver about the reasons that a company's growth can stall, surprising the executives. In our book, we set out to study the growth experience of all of the U.S. and international companies that have ranked in the Fortune 100 since the index was created in 1955. So that's about 600 companies across the past 50 years. We wanted to answer some central questions for the chief executives and executive teams who would benefit from this work. Uh, So uh, how common is it for companies to stall in their growth? What are the costs and consequences of those stalls? Some of the major reasons. uh, How hard is it to return to growth? Uh, And given the size of that population, we had to limit ourselves to study of the major turning points. So if you do the math, 600 companies across 50 years, that's 30,000 years of company experience to mine for insight. So to focus our search, we developed this concept of the stall point, a material multi-year turning point in revenue growth. And Dr. Marjorie Greenfield about her pregnancy guide for working women. Well, you know, I think a lot of people always wanted to have children and put it off because of career goals. And, you know, we're giving giving such mixed messages now as we're growing up as girls. You want to be a mom probably, and you also want to be very successful in the workplace, and it can be very hard to combine those things. Stay tuned. In today's economic climate, it's not hard to find stories about companies in trouble. But even in boom times, companies are often surprised by what appears to be a sudden decline in their fortunes. In their new book, Stall Points, Most Companies Stop Growing, Yours Doesn't Have To, Derek Van Beaver, co-author, along with Matthew S. Olson, explains why the men and women running these companies are often blindsided by events. Matthew S. Olson is an executive director, and Derek Van Beaver is the chief research officer of the Corporate Executive Board, the premier advisory and performance improvement network for leaders of the world's largest public and private organizations. Derek Van Beaver, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. You bet, Chris. So could you define what you mean by a stall point? Sure. Stall points are major turning points in company growth history, significant multi-year downturns in revenue growth, and not quarterly or annual hiccups. Now, the term stall point is one that we coined, and I think it's a pretty useful concept. Let me explain why we developed this. In our book, we set out to study the growth experience of all of the U.S. and international companies that have ranked in the Fortune 100 since the index was created in 1955. So that's about 600 companies across the past 50 years. We wanted to answer some central questions for the chief executives and executive teams who would benefit from this work. Uh, So uh, how common is it for companies to stall in their growth? What are the costs and consequences of those stalls? Some of the major reasons. uh, How hard is it to return to growth? Uh, And given the size of that population, we had to limit ourselves to study of the major turning points. So if you do the math, 600 companies across 50 years, that's 30,000 years of company experience to mine for insight. So to focus our search, we developed this concept of the stall point, a material
material multi-year turning point in revenue growth. And we applied this concept to the population to answer the questions that I just described. Uh, some very quick lessons that we learned uh, from the quantitative analysis that we did. Um, first, uh, most large companies do stall. So in the population that we studied, 87% of companies suffered one or more stall points across that 50-year period. And even great companies can stall. IBM, Disney, Caterpillar, Bank of America, 3M are just a few of the companies whose stalls we described. Second, and intriguingly, most companies actually accelerate into a stall. So by far the most common pattern is for a company to experience revenue growth in the 8 to 10% range in the years approaching the stall, spike to 14% in the year just prior to the stall, and then to plummet, to go negative in the years immediately following the stall, and to maintain a pretty uninteresting level of growth uh, in the decade thereafter. Third, stalls are devastating to the value of the company, uh, destroying on average 74% of market cap in that decade surrounding the stall. And then finally, you know, while companies can recover, experience shows that you have to do it fast. While almost half of companies do recover, the vast majority of those do so within 10 years of their stalls. After that, you have a 7% chance, kind of a, a 1 in 14 shot of ever recovering to meaningful top-line growth. But one strategist that we interviewed said it well. He said, all companies stumble, but the great companies recover, and they all recover fast. Well, I was going to say, while I was reading this book, I was trying to sort out the difference between a stall point and what one might run into in classical microeconomic theory of the firm as more firms come into a marketplace and driving and drive the price of the uh, product down to cost level. Is, it, is, it diff is that different than a stall point? I think so, yeah. What we found was that Stall points are typically not um, industry phenomena or uh, economic um, macroeconomic period phenomena. They really are um, specific company uh, phenomena, and they're they're driven by um, uh, a disconnect between company strategy and the external environment. Some change in customer uh, desires, uh, competitive climate some external change that strategy hasn't caught up with yet. So in your answer regarding the four things that uh, you picked up from studying the stall points, you talk about accelerating. Uh, a lot of the companies accelerate into a stall. Is that why insiders in the company are often surprised that their company's stalling, that they really don't see it coming? Exactly. That's, um, you're spot on. <clears throat> um, I really think this is the most fascinating aspect of our research, and it's one that is probably the most surprising proposition to executives who've read the book. It's the most difficult one for them to accept. So um, we did a lot of analysis to try to identify reliable leading indicators of a stall, so some pattern in the financials, patterns in market valuation. And some industries do offer clues. You know, In retail, uh, the math of geographic penetration and same-store sales is pretty well understood, so it's not impossible to spot trouble brewing for a Starbucks, for example. But overall, there are no consistent, reliable financial indicators of a stall available to uh, Wall Street analysts or outside investors. Um, we do believe that stalls are as often a surprise to management, to, to insiders armed with privileged information, as they are to outside observers. And the way it works is this. So strategies are based on strategic assumptions, observations about markets or competitors or technologies that arise from direct observation, get enshrined in the strategic plan, get translated into operational guidance, and eventually harden into accepted orthodoxy. 
What happens in this process is that assumptions migrate from an accurate depiction of the world to a dangerously misguided or obsolete perspective. In fact, our analysis of hundreds of stall points in leading companies has led us to the fundamental conclusion that the assumptions a management team holds the most deeply has known so long or so well that they're no longer actively debated. Uh, those are the assumptions that pose the greatest danger to growth. So in, in a shorthand, it's not what you know that isn't so that will stop your growth run. It's what you know that's no longer so. Compounding this, um, questioning assumptions is not something that most top teams do or do well. Right? The senior executive team doesn't effectively stress test the assumptions on which strategy is based to ensure that those assumptions continue to reflect external reality. Part of the reason for that is the nature of the senior executive mandate. Uh, so the CEO and his or her team are paid to develop a vision and then to execute that vision with resolve. So uh, introspection and self-doubt self -doubt don't really figure highly in the personality profile of executives at the top of uh, great enterprises. Uh, also, there's just simply process. You know, there are a few safe rooms where a chief executive can actually express his or her midnight anxieties and really think them through in a structured way. So uh, our book offers a variety of tools and practices for engaging the organization, the board, and selected outsiders in the process of articulating and challenging the assumptions that underlie strategy. And actually, we've created a diagnostic tool that all of your listeners can access for free if they would like. We, we call it our red flag diagnostic self-test. And um, at the end of our research process, we gathered the team together and asked them, what were the warning signs that company management could or arguably should have spotted that would have warned them of an impending stall? And we developed this into a set of 50 warning signs or red flags, uh, questions in company finance, strategy, R&D, HR, marketing, operations, governance. Uh, this diagnostic is on the website for the book, which is um, www.stallpoints.executiveboard.com. And your listeners can go to our site, take the test anonymously, and download a copy of their results, as well as a guide to help them interpret those results. Uh, in the book, you talk about uh, internal and external causes of stall points. And not surprisingly, the external causes of, sound point, of stall points, those things that kind of snuck up on the company, not internally, aren't nearly as great as the internal problems. Before we get into the differences between the two, it, I was wondering if executives, when they make that realization that, okay, our company's stalling, do they generally know the reason or do they kind of pick, oh, well, it must be something external to the company, only to find out later on it's probably going to be something internal to the company? Mm -hmm. I, I think the most common pattern that we saw, and it's sort of generalizing across a lot of cases, but the most common pattern that we saw from our um, case study analysis was that if you go back in time and sort of reconstruct the conversation that's taking place in the executive suite in the period surrounding the stall, what, what you find is that very typically some one or more members of the team are onto the issue. So they've spotted the, the weakness in uh, product set or the, the danger posed by a new competitor. But for you know, very human reasons, groupthink, you know, conformance to norms, et cetera, um, for one reason or another, they've not been able to carry the day and cause the team to go back and revisit something that everyone agrees is you know, 
foundational to strategy. It's an assumption underneath strategy. So the most common pattern that you find is um, uh, the team was aware of the issue but wasn't sure how much weight to ascribe to it or how much, um, how many, how much resource to focus on it uh, at the time. It was only later that that particular area would pop up as being um, not just out of sync with the external context, but you know, dangerously out of sync. Well, the book looks at several areas in both external and internal uh, reasons why a company might stall. And it seemed to me from the book that the biggest reason overall is what you refer to as premium position captivity. What is that? Uh, premium position captivity is the inability of market leaders to respond to the entry of a disruptive competitor or to some change in customer preferences. As you said, it's, it's far and away the leading cause of stalls, fully uh, 23% of all the stalls that we documented uh, involved premium captivity. Uh, I think a great case example of this that your listeners will be familiar with uh, would be the stall of Levi Strauss in 1996. Uh, if you roll back the clock, uh, Levi's had gone through a tremendous period of growth from kind of the mid-80s through the early 90s, um, uh, relaunching the 501 brand, increasing international sales, uh, uh, launching Dockers, for example, into the marketplace. Uh, but in the mid-90s, Levi management found itself stuck in its core jeans business with a single product line targeted at the middle of the market. And new competitors were coming in above and below that position. So the growth areas in the marketplace were high-end designer jeans from above, and then private label sales through the Walmarts and JCPenney's of the world from below. And Levi's predicament really accurately captures that sense of captivity of being stuck. You know, they were afraid if they responded either at the high end or the low end, they would alienate the mass of their customer base. And so they essentially stood still and watched the market just evolve beyond their capability. But it was that sense of um, holding on to a uh, holding on to the perception of a market-leading position after that market-leading position had evaporated. Last part of your book talks about some possible solutions that uh, companies can do to help them see their stall points and hopefully work through them quickly. What are some of these? Yeah. <clears throat> well, we've alluded to one um, in terms of that red flag diagnostic. The most important thing for management teams to do to avoid stalling is to invest the work that it takes to articulate the assumptions underneath their strategies and to continually test the ongoing relevance and accuracy of those assumptions. Uh, this is something that most management teams don't do, um, uh, not just don't do well, but don't do. Um, in our conversations with heads of strategy recently around this work, one thing that a room that we were uh, facilitating kind of made its way to was that um, most strategic review processes are good at identifying goals and they're good at identifying uncertainties, but they are much less good at articulating core beliefs. So, you know, what are the foundations on which we are advancing the plan that we're bringing to you today? So we recommend that members of management uh, uh, take that red flag test and uh, then compare results with each other to organize discussion around three areas. You know, where do we all agree that we're in trouble? in these 50 areas. But where do we all believe that we're safe? You know, this could still be an opportunity for a group think. Uh, and most importantly, where is there uneven recognition of vulnerability? 
So where has the chief executive spotted something that the rest of the team has yet to see, or vice versa? You know, what are some of the areas where one or more members of the team have spotted something that has yet to hit the CEO's radar? Now, we facilitate these discussions for member companies of, of the corporate executive board every day, but this is something that management teams can easily do for themselves if they're willing to invest the time. But one other thing I should say, um, we editorialize a bit at the back of our book in uh, Chapter 14, I think. Uh, we believe this is a prime opportunity for the board of directors to get involved in managing uh, one of the most serious controllable risks that the company faces. So in um, uh, reaction to uh, the uh, Enron scandal, all of the concern around corporate governance reform, boards have really thrown um, the focus over to uh, financial uh, uh, governance and uh, ensuring uh, tight integrity around those processes and have largely um, given up the time that was formerly devoted to review of strategy. We think this is a great opportunity for board members to ask management very pointed questions about the assumptions underneath strategy and then to um, uh, evaluate uh, the strategy based on how satisfying the responses are. Stall Points, Most Companies Stop Growing, Yours Doesn't Have To, is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Derek Van Beaver, go to www.yalebooks.com podcasts. Statistics show that American women are waiting later and later to start families. And in most cases, these women are working and having to balance their pregnancy with their professional responsibilities. In her new book, The Working Woman's Pregnancy Book, Dr. Marjorie Greenfield shares both her medical expertise and the responses from over 100 working women on how they navigated both challenges. Marjorie Greenfield is a practicing board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist, a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, an associate professor of reproductive biology at Case Western Reserve University's School of Medicine. Dr. Marjorie Greenfield, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. I'm very happy to be here. Your book, The Working Women's Pregnancy Book, is the first maternity book really specifically targeted towards working women. As the majority of American women of childbearing years are in the workplace and have been there for quite a while, why did it so? Why did it take so long for a book like this to come out? Well, there have been some books on working and pregnancy that have been focused specifically on work. This is really the first book that is a full-scope pregnancy book. And I'm really not sure why, because even when I had my child 19 years ago, and even at that point, all of my friends worked while they were pregnant, especially with the first pregnancy. And a lot of the pregnancy books didn't speak to us. You know, one of the images in the media is that professional women are having children at a much older age than, say, 20 years ago. I guess my first question is, are you seeing older first-time mothers in your own practice? Oh, definitely. Um, we have a lot of first-time moms that are 40. So what are some of the physical and emotional issues these women might have to cope with if they haven't really thought, if they kind of find themselves rather surprised that they're pregnant? Well, you know, I think a lot of people always wanted to have children and put it off because of career goals and you know we're giving such, we're given such mixed messages now as we're growing up as girls you want to be a mom probably and you also want to be very successful in the workplace and it can be very hard to combine those things the challenges really are that i mean there's, there's pluses and minuses when you wait that long one of the pluses is that you have a little bit more autonomy at work typically you may have more flexibility and when you go back to work people often have a lot more flexibility than in jobs that they haven't been in for so long. 
Uh, on the other hand, you're used to being very confident and capable, and it can be really shocking to bring a new baby home and to realize that you're not quite so confident as you thought. So what's the methodology of this book? I mean, I know that you're an OBGYN, and, there's a, and you talk about the interviews. How many interviews did you end up going through, and how long did it take? Uh, we did about a, a little over 100 interviews. We tried to get a really wide range of women, uh, racially, ethnically, age-wise, different kinds of relationships, um, as many different kinds of jobs as we could. Um, and, through, and I interviewed, did these interviews along with six medical students. And we did the interviews over a period probably of about a year from start to finish. Um, it was during the time that I was also writing the book. Uh, the interviews really focused on the experience of being pregnant, specifically for working women, but also all different aspects of the pregnancy experience. And it was a very free-form interview. When uh, the first set of medical students did their interviews, it was really focused on the work aspect. What was it like to be working during pregnancy? What was it like to go back to work? Uh, and that gave me a very rich base to pull from both in terms of the quotes that I provided in the book, which are little stories from different women and advice, and also it gave me a base of information that I didn't necessarily have just from being an OBGYN. The second group of medical students, we realized that we didn't have as many stories about actual childbirth because we were so focused on work, and so we went back and talked to a lot of women about their birth experiences, and then I did another set later about breastfeeding and specifically breastfeeding and going back to work. But these were very free-form interviews. Women got to say what they wanted to say. Well, realizing that 100 women might not be a statistically significant uh, sample to look from, but were you surprised by anything that these interviews came back with? There were a lot of surprises to me. I think one of the things that was so great about it was the opposite opinions. One person would say, I felt so beautiful while I was pregnant. I was at the top of my game. Another person would say, I never felt dumpier. I felt, you know, just like I wanted to crawl under a rock and I really didn't feel good about myself until the baby was nine months old. And I love the huge discrepancies between what different people said because it's so much more powerful for somebody who's reading this to see that and say, okay, I fall somewhere in there, I'm normal, than to have me saying, oh, you know, some people feel this way and some people feel that way. So the power of the actual stories was really what impressed me. And the range of experiences that were so contradictory, but that's the way it is. Did you find anything, I guess, on the business side of it, rather, I guess, either heartening or a little saddening as far as the things these women had to go through professionally as they were pregnant? Definitely, I did. Uh, one of the stories that I found most disheartening was an advertising executive who really felt that she lost her place in line at work because of having made a decision to have a baby. That she, as soon as she announced she was pregnant, she no longer got any good jobs, any good clients, any good projects. And even when she was planning to come back, they kept saying, well, if you come back. And she had awful intentions of going back and wanting to be just as competitive as she was before. And she felt that she really was written off. Even when she went back, it took her a very long time to establish herself professionally again. And she was really disappointed with that, and it was a very negative and traumatic experience for her. So those are the individual stories. Uh, 
if a woman reads your book and sees these stories, is there any recommendations that you're making so that they can have perhaps a better experience through their pregnancy professionally than they would if they hadn't have read your book? There's a lot of tips in the book, and this starts right at the beginning about timing your pregnancy, thinking about when in your life is the right time to have a baby, all the way through dealing with early pregnancy symptoms at work. And we have very specific recommendations, for instance, for women that are feeling very nauseated. There are specific things, a, a pack of stuff to bring to work every day to help you get through, things that have worked for different women in terms of alleviating nausea. But also little tricks like if you're going to be at a meeting, sit near the door so people don't notice you getting up and leaving quite so often, uh, bringing a fresh change of clothes. Um, if you need to get up a lot, maybe planning trips to different parts of the office when you need to get up anyway to go to the bathroom, so going to make a copy of something, dropping something off at someone's desk so it's not just going back and forth to the bathroom all day. And these are things that just help people, I think, feel a little more normal at work. Uh, and maybe not feel so alone dealing with their symptoms. And then also things about uh, family medical leave and what your your allotment is, what you're allowed at your work, trying to figure that out, because that's not always so easy. Some workplaces, it's very clear-cut exactly what you get, but in many workplaces, people have trouble figuring out what they're allowed. So there's information about that. So there's a lot of very specific sort of um, checklists and uh, tip, tip lists that can help people with different sorts of issues. Now, it's probably not going to be any surprise to the listeners that I'm a man, and uh, I will tell people that I, I do, my wife and I do not have children. So I know what I got out of this book, but what do you think a man would get out of reading this book? Well, I think there's two different issues. One is the man who's the father of the baby, and there's a lot of pregnancy information in here about what's normal and what kinds of symptoms people have, what causes different things, um, what particularly what to expect in the birth process. I also have a list of recommended books for the dad. Um, then there's also the man who's the employer. And I really think employers need to understand a little better about pregnancy. Uh, for instance, one of the women we interviewed said that towards the end of her pregnancy, she had gestational diabetes and high blood pressure. And people at work were saying to her, well, why do you have to go to the doctor twice a week? You know, my grandfather has high blood pressure, and he doesn't go twice a week to the doctor. And I think it would be helpful for employers to understand when someone has a complication of pregnancy, what does that actually mean in terms of how they need to take care of themselves. So um, last question. You talked about the methodology behind the book and that there were uh, medical students who were going going through the questionnaires. Do you think this would be helpful for them as they get into their medical careers? Or I mean, does does medical training normally provide for this kind of like I guess, up-close view of what women are going through as far as uh, taking time out to interview them about what their pregnancies were like. I totally agree with that, that medical students are not so much taught to see things from the patient's perspective. We're taught a lot of medical information, a lot of how to deal with things. And I think what the medical students told me was that it was immeasurably helpful to actually have the time to talk to women and hear their stories. Uh, I think the two students that did the elective with me on natural childbirth, when we were talking a lot about childbirth issues, really hadn't had much of a chance to talk to moms about their birth experiences. And we don't really talk about that much in our medical training. We talk about keeping the baby safe, keeping the mother safe, medical aspects, when do you need to do a C-section, but not so much what the woman's experience is. 
So I hope and I think that the, the chance to really talk to women and listen to women should be really beneficial for all of these students as they go into their careers. Most of them are going into OBGYN. So is there a URL that listeners can go to to learn a little bit more about the work that you do? Sure. I've got my own website. It's www.marjoriegreenfield.com. The Working Woman's Pregnancy Book is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. For more information, go to www.yalebooks.com. I don't mean to alarm you, but it is August, which means only one month to go before school starts and the summer is done. One month to get through all the books from the Yale University Press book sale that you've been putting off purchasing. So, go on over to yalebooks.com, click on the sale banner on the left side of the webpage, and make the most of this August. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites. Or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer. Stephen Cray engineered the Stallpoint segment. And my name is Chris Gondek. I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2008. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.